Welcome to Count Me In with Della and Deanna. Today our guest is Talithia Williams, Associate Professor of Mathematics at Harvey Mudd College. You may know her from her TED Talk, Own Your Body's Data, or her book, Power in Numbers, The Rebel Women of Mathematics, or as the co-host of the PBS series, Nova Wonders. She grew up in Columbus, Georgia, did her undergraduate work at Spelman College, earned a master's degree in math from Howard, and a PhD in statistics from Rice. She's committed to making sophisticated mathematics accessible to broad audiences. In this very lively conversation, you will not only see how our life underscores the power of effective mentoring, the influence of personal and professional support, and the benefits of community, but you will also learn about the incredibly unusual item she has situated on her desk. Please join us. Hello. Oh, hi. Hi. How are you all? Good. Good. How are you, Lithia? Doing great. Good to see you. Welcome to our podcast, Count Me In with Della and Deanna. We were hoping that you would start us off by telling your story. And you can include when you first interacted with math or not. It's up to you. Okay. We want the full story. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yes, I'm Talithia Williams and um, grew up in Columbus, Georgia, which is about 100 miles south of Atlanta and um, grew up with an older brother, a younger brother uh, and my mom and dad in the household. So it was a, it was a fun time. Um, I think I first so I was always like one of the kids who, you know, kind of enjoyed doing their homework and trying to make good grades and um like make my parents proud. And so um, I always really worked hard in school, even though I think I struggled in things. Um, and once I got to junior high, I was sort of a part of the, the generation um, when they first started pitching uh, algebra in eighth grade. So like my junior high school had one algebra class mm-hmm. in the entire you know school of about 2,500 people. So algebra just sort of wasn't something that you know, students were being pressed to take uh, in middle school or in junior high. So I was in pre-algebra in the eighth grade and it was, I thought it was easy. I'm like, oh, this is so simple. And, you know, um, and so I begged my pre-algebra teacher to let me go into algebra because I was like, I want to be in an algebra class. You know, there's only (laughs) one in the school. Uh, And so she let me move there in January of my eighth grade year. So halfway through, I'm, you know, I move up to algebra and I was totally unprepared. Like I had no idea what variables were. They were using X's and exponents. And I was like, what are these little numbers? And what are these letters? Why are letters <laughs> apart? You know. Um, so I did horribly. I did horribly that first six weeks when my report card came back. And I remember sitting at the kitchen table with my mom, like, I have a D. Like I've never made a D, you know, like who am I? Um, and she was like, well, you can just, why don't you just go back to pre-algebra? You know, and I'm like, oh no, like I can't. I can't face my friends and let them see that I could. I was like, I will flunk algebra before I go back to pre-algebra, you know, like with my head hanging down, you know. <laughs> so I was like prepared to fail. Um, but I started we- meeting with my teacher, Mr. Bell, who was so amazing. Like he always encouraged me to, you know, keep at it. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I just really had to work hard. And I love sharing that story because sometimes people think, you know, if you do math, like, oh, you must have come out of the womb, you know, right, saying the right. Pythagorean theorem. And that's just not true. Um, and and also coming into a situation where I wasn't prepared, but I had ability. And I think it's made me much more sympathetic as a professor because often uh, I get students who are who have a lot of ability but may not be prepared, right? They may have missed something or skipped something, and now they're in a position where it's just not clicking for them. And so it makes me reflect about that eighth grade year because I was really enthusiastic, but um, uh, he nurtured that, right? He encouraged it. He didn't say, you know what, Mm-mm. you're not doing a good job. You need to go back because he he had every right to say that to mm-hmm. say you're failing. You don't understand the material. You know this is too much for you. Um, but that's not what he chose to do. Uh, I got to high school and um, AP classes were just getting introduced. I took a lot of AP classes, U.S. history, world history, chemistry, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, you know, our town, um, <laughs> this is a public uh, podcast, but, you know, teachers were just getting used <laughs> to AP. So if I could be honest, in those first couple of years, they didn't really teach it much different than like the honors version of a course. So like AP right. English was really kind of like honor, like it was just sort of like growing into what AP mm-hmm, really mm-hmm. means. So all, my friends and I were like, you know, we sort of got hip to the game, but teachers were 
they were learning, they were trying to figure it out. And so we could get like AP classes for <laughs> honors, you know, effort. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so I, li- I signed up for every AP class that my high school had. Like, li- I just like, oh, AP, nope, I'm taking AP. Um, you know, and when you could get a B and it would still be a four point, I'm like, I'm definitely taking AP, like, you know, <laughs> how do I get all Bs? Um, and so, uh, and I say that to say, I wasn't like necessarily in high school, like I'm going to be the valedictorian. I was just like, what is the minimal amount of effort I can put in and still have a good GPA? Um, I took, uh, AP calculus my, my senior year. And uh, my teacher was Mr. Dorman. And um, it's funny that I have these teachers who were male uh, math teachers that really sort of stand out in my life. But um, Mr. Dorman would always send us to the board to work homework problems or, you know, work problems for extra credit. And he'd stand in the middle of the room and he'd look around. And, you know, if you got it right, you get a check. And if you didn't, you wouldn't get any extra credit. And so I was always at the board doing extra credit because I really struggled in calculus. And I remember once I went to the board with a friend of mine and we had no clue what we were doing. It was something, you know, some derivative and I was lost. She was lost. And there was no one to like look around and check out like what your neighbor's doing. And and so the class just starts laughing because it's clear that we don't know how to solve this problem. We're the only ones up there. We're struggling, you know, and, you know, I mean, it's not looking good for the home team. And so we sort of hang our heads and I'm like, oh, okay, well, let me go back to my seat. Yeah, not to mention that the class is not very diverse. So the two black girls are at the board struggling. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the rest of the class, <laughs> which is non-black, is laughing at us. So like it was just multiple layers of, you know, um, how's this gonna play out? And uh, and so we're walking back, and Mr. Dorman's like, girls, that looks great to me. You guys are up there, you're doing those derivatives. This is hardcore stuff. You just need an algebra student in there to help you with those details. That's extra credit, right? And so he starts <laughs> writing extra credit. And we're just like, yeah, yeah, we're taking derivatives. That's right. That's right. You know, <laughs> so he like, you know, pumped us up in that moment when, again, this could have been a pivotal moment of you know, feeling like, do I, do I belong to this community or not? And he was just like, it's okay to make mistakes. You know, I love that you went up there and you tried it because everyone else looked at the problem and said, it's too hard and I'm not going to even try. Oh, good like, for him. Girls, That's you went up, yeah. you gave me your best shot, you didn't get it, but you were like bold enough to give it a, you know, to, to, mm-hmm. to give it a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, that was like another lesson that, you know, it's not that we only, that I only do math when I think I can get it, you know, it's mm-hmm. not that I do it because I know I'm going to get it right. Like part of it is that process of discovery and getting it wrong and being confused and not getting a problem in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, uh, went to Spelman college undergrad. Spelman is a historically black college for women in Atlanta, Georgia. And so I went there, I applied undecided because I really had no idea what I wanted to major in. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I had a strong math background, but I also had like a strong English and social studies. And, you know, I mean, I'd done fine in other subjects. So there wasn't like a subject that was calling to me that like, oh, you're going to be a mathematician one day. Um, I definitely didn't feel that. And, you know, quite frankly, I didn't know other Black women who were mathematicians. So even the thought mm-hmm. of like, what would I do if I majored in math? Like, that's not... Mm-hmm. reasonable you know I, I could see myself being a doctor and maybe doing biology but like math and physics or chemistry just didn't seem like subjects that I would major in mm-hmm. and part of that was just exposure right just not being exposed to seeing people who look like me who did those things um so I sent in my application a couple weeks later Spellman sent me an application for a scholarship a NASA wise scholarship women in science and engineering and it was like for a full ride and so I was like, oh, mom, like, this is a full ride. This is great. Wow. You know, what do I need to do to apply? Right. It was just an invitation <laughs> to apply. It was just like, you can apply. You know, we know that you've taken some <laughs> science classes. Do you want to apply for this scholarship? And I'm like, yes, sign me up. So uh, and so, you know, I do the application and then you have to check off what you might want to major in because you had mm-hmm. to major in one of the sciences or in engineering. And so I go down the list. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do chemistry. You know, I scratch that off. Oh, physics. Mm-mm. Oh, electrical engineering. Who does that? And so I'm, I'm like literally like Xing all the uh-huh. And my mom's like, well, you got to pick something if you're going to apply. And I was like, so math was the only thing that I hadn't crossed off yet. <laughs> yet. It was about to be. Like it was, I was just making my way through. And so then I checked math. Like, well, I guess 
if you know, like if that's what I have to do. But it, again, it wasn't like this epiphany of like, mm-hmm. you know, thou shalt major in. Just <laughs> mm-hmm. like, well, I want this scholarship, and I'll do what you know, if they're going to pay me, <laughs> I'll do whatever they want. You know, for four years. Um, so I checked math, and then a couple weeks later, they're like, "Congratulations, you know, you're an, a wise scholar." And so then I was like, "Well, I can't. If I change my major, it has to be something else on the list." <laughs> already crossed out the stuff that I really, really hated. So I sort of like stuck with math by default. Um, so I majored in math. Spelman was a very supportive place to be a math major. Um, one thing that I, I realized in hindsight, once I got to sort of uh, different mathematical spaces, was that, you know, when you're in a, when I was in a classroom with all Black women, um, I was never, ever aware of my race or my mm-hmm. gender. I was mm-hmm. never, I was always just sort of enthralled with the mathematics and just mm-hmm. consumed by it that it never occurred to me that I was like a black woman doing math or, you know, a, you know, a woman or a person of color doing math um, because we all were. And so mm-hmm. it just, right. it, it, I think gave me much more space to think about mathematics in a way that I noticed changed when I got in other spaces. Um, and also like finding a group to study with and to, you know, like these things just came so easy that it just felt like math was easy. It's like, Oh, this is easy. Everybody wants to be in my group. My teachers love helping me. Like, it just felt like, you know, who wouldn't want to learn math like this? This is just awesome, you know? Um, and so then I could really focus on the parts of it that were difficult, that were hard, because there was all this other support was in place. There was community, there were study groups, there was help. Right. You fail an exam, teachers were there to support you. You know, like nobody's trying to mm-hmm. kick you out of math. Nobody's suggesting that, ooh, this might not be, you know, yeah. might not yeah. be cut out for this. Like never did that ever come out of anyone's mouth. No matter how poor you did, it was like, that's okay. That's okay. Like, we're going to get you through as a math major. What do we need to do to <laughs> you know, help you graduate in math? Um, Everyone should have that environment. That's right. Yes. That's yeah. right. So anyway, yes, that gets me through at least undergrad. And then I just wanted to make a comment. What you were saying about Spellman is exactly what Zarati Woods, he graduated from Morehouse. He yeah. says the same thing about Morehouse only he is much more, um, I'll say, would you say this is a public podcast? He says when he was at Morehouse, he could be a man studying mathematics. But whenever he left Morehouse, he was always a black man first and everything else second, whether he was in the grocery store. But he loved being at Morehouse where he could just think about math, saying exactly what you said. That's, oh, so, that's right. Oh, mm-hmm. that's right. That's I think right. we just need to reiterate that point and encourage mm-hmm. all of us to create those kind of spaces. Mm-hmm. That's right. And and when you're not aware of it, you're you're so much freer to to just engulf yourself in the material. And and as I got to other spaces where I was like the only woman or the only person of color, those it would sit in my mind. Like I'd look around and you'd notice or you'd want to ask a question. But then I'd be like, well, are they going to think I'm asking because I don't know because I'm a black person. And so then all these thoughts are happening that I'm processing and I'm not tuned into what what's happening in front of me. And then all of a sudden I'm more behind. I'm like, well, let me not ask that because they may have just answered it while I was having this internal monologue in my head about whether or not I should even speak up, you know? Um, And I think all of that just sort of weighs in, you know, when it's turn and and join a group, you know, how do people look at you in terms of working together? Like, are they like, oh, finally, Talithi, I couldn't wait to turn around and do this math problem with you. I don't think I ever got that response, you know? And so it's, you know, and like, these are all parts that make you feel like you're in a community, a mathematical community. Um, mm-hmm. Who wants to be in my study group? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, nobody's calling me or sending me an email and knocking down my door. And so it's up to me to form those, those connections. Whereas for other people, you know, they tend to just connect naturally. Like, oh, maybe like all the Chinese students will be working together, you know? And so it wasn't like, they invited each other, which is sort of this like obvious, like, oh yes, you, you're going to work with us, you know? Mm-hmm. And so um, I'd have to invite myself into that space instead of just automatically being a part of it. But you said your high school, uh, at least one of your classes was a different experience, that that it was very white. And uh, could you talk about that transition from going from a place where you were one of only a couple of yeah. uh, Black students to uh, a place much sure. more comfortable at Spelman? Yeah, I mean, and I, I was in a magnet program uh, at Columbus High School, so it was very, it was selective, and, and um, those spaces were diverse, but also 
very white spaces. I remember when I got into Spelman and I was so excited and I mentioned it to one of my teachers. Like, I think this is where I want to go. And she was like, that's great, but that's not the real world, Talithia. Like, why would you spend four years there when it's not going to be like representative of what society is? Um, and, and it wasn't like a, you know, she was trying to discourage me. She was just like, well, you could go to Emory, you could go to Harvard, you could, you know, like, you could go so many other places. Like, why go to this place that isn't reality? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, but for me, for four years, it's going to be my reality, you know? And so I'm going to like enjoy that, that reality of, of what that feels like. Um, What's your it, response to her now about that? Oh my gosh. You know, it's so... It, Spelman, that experience, or any historically Black college, um, it's so affirming. It's like I I would encourage someone to go to an African country, you know, go to Mombasa, you know, go to Ethiopia and just live there for a year as a white person. Because it's hard to explain. Like, it's hard when you're, when, when you're, you know, it's a part of the sea that she swam in. Like, you know, she saw herself reflected everywhere. And so, uh, you know, now I encourage people go to a space where you don't see yourself reflected and sit with that. Like, how mm-hmm. does it feel to live in this space where you're different and people always perceive you as different um, and just kind of be in that space? Because going to Spelman, it felt like home. It felt natural. It felt, you know, like, oh, great. I'm seeing people who look like me all the time. Uh, whereas for most people, that's what they see in their day-to-day life. So they, they don't think anything special of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're up through Spelman. I graduated from Spelman. I um, didn't think about grad school. Sylvia Bozeman mentioned it. Etta Faulkner mentioned it. They were like, you should th- you should go to grad school in math. And I was like, eh, you know, it's Georgia. Getting a high school diploma in Georgia was like, you know, just cream of the crop. <laughs> <laughs> and then getting a bachelor's degree. Oh, you could like run the state. You know, and so, and so you know, I felt like in the year 2000 with a bachelor's degree in Georgia, like, uh, what is, what, what can I not do? Um, and then I think someone mentioned salaries based on education level. And I saw some graph, some data. And I was like, oh, if you get a PhD, you make what? Really? Well, tell me about this grad school, Dr. Faulkner. You say you think I can go, and they're going to pay me to go get up. They'll pay me to get a PhD. You know, and I, I was, I'm so amazed, right? You know, I mean, I'm coming off of this NASA scholarship. And so the thought that I could just keep going to school, only do math, which is now what I like, right? Like I don't have to do these sociology and psychology and English lit, you know, like, okay, uh, I can just do like three math classes, like, and that's my whole day. Um, and so there was something exciting about that. And so, yeah, so I sat down with Dr. Faulkner. We talked about grad schools, the, the late Dr. Faulkner. Um, and I mentioned uh, that I wanted to go to Cornell that's when Carlos Castillo Chavez was at Cornell. I was like, I want to go work with Carlos and it'll be great. And, you know, it's a great school. And she looked at me and she was just so straight faced. (laughs) She said, "Um, how are you going to find a husband in Ithaca? And I was just like, (laughs) "Uh a husband? And she said, and and who's going to do your hair? And I was just like, my my hair. <laughs> so, so you know, the whole four years at Spelman, Dr. Faulkner would preach, leave those Morehouse boys alone. They, you don't need them. They're a dime a dozen. Focus on your work. You know, like, don't think about them. Just, you know. And so here I am thinking about grad school. She's like, well, what about a man? Like, how are you going to find somebody? And I was like, are you the same person who told me not to go, not even go across the street? You know? Um, but the point she was making was really, you know, outside of grad school, like part of your success in grad school has to do with the environment. And mm-hmm. while, you know, Cornell's a great place, Carlos is amazing. Outside of that, what do you have in Ithaca? What community mm-hmm. do you have? What support do you have? You're spending five or six or seven years in your early 20s in a place where there may not be a lot of options for the type of people that you're interested in dating or forming relationships with. And so that really got me to thinking about sort of, you know, not just what's a good fit academically, but also what locations are good. I started a PhD program in math at Howard University in D.C., which was great, great fit in in all ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I love the program at Howard. I took I took a biostats elective course like 
just like, oh, I've got space in my schedule. I'll take this mm-hmm. biostatistics in the biology department. Like it wasn't even in the math department. It was like, <laughs> you know, literally just like, and just kind of fell in love with statistics from this class. Um, and so I decided to transfer to the PhD program in stats at Rice mm-hmm. and um, spent five years there and finished my PhD in statistics and, and loved every moment. That I mean, that was the different environment. So that was coming into a space where in my first year cohort, I was the only woman um, and the only African-American. And so kind of navigating that space with my other uh, male colleagues was was interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. How, how did you... How did you keep yourself happy? How did you keep yourself sane? What did you do to, um, you know, to manage that space? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's see. Well, I met my husband, so that helped a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. but uh, before before meeting him and, and before getting married, um, I really had to make friends with the guys, and um, and I felt like I needed to do it early on to sort of keep us from going into silos. And so, um, because I didn't feel it fit anybody's silo. And I also didn't want to be like the sympathy case, like oh, we'll take to Lydia, you like come be in our room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, I remember the first week of classes we had, uh, our homework was due every Friday, I think. And so I sent an email saying, hey guys, let's meet Wednesday in the stat library um, to work on homework together. Because uh, it was only about 13 of us. It wasn't a, a, a large group. Um, I said, why don't we go to lunch and then meet and do homework? Let me know if you have a car and how many people you can take. Like, it was just cut and dry. Like, mm-hmm. hey, here's what we're doing. We're going to lunch and then we're going to meet and we're going to do homework because it's due on Friday. We're going to do it on Wednesday together. Do you have a car? You know? And so they were like, oh, yeah, yeah I have a car. I don't have a car. You know? And so they were started, you know, and so I was sort of like organizing the group. Mm-hmm. So then I'm like, great, we're going to meet let's meet at this time. Here's where we're going. These three people are driving, you know? And so it's sort of like building community. We're all riding with each other. And, and so we'd come back and we'd start homework problems together. Um, the Monday before I would try all the homework problems. Like I would try them, I'd work them, I'd get mm-hmm. solutions. Mm-hmm. And then I'd show up Wednesday, like with, with blank paper. <laughs> and so I'd be like, okay, first question. Mm, what do you think? Ah, uh, you know what? Let me see. Let me just give it a shot, guys. I don't know. I don't know. But let me see what I can do up here at this board. So I'd work through it real slow and they'd be like, that looks good. I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'm just trying to help. I'm just here so we can all get this done, you know. Second problem, same thing, you know. Uh, so that happened the first two weeks. Mm-hmm. Organize it. I'd work all the problems Monday. I'd show up Wednesday and pretend that I didn't know. I hope they don't listen. <laughs> guys, you, you all, I think, yeah, okay, we're all friends. Anyway, so by the third week, I really couldn't get through the problems without group help. <laughs> so the third week we're in there and I'm like, you know what, guys, I don't want to take over. It's not about me. Let me just, I just, I feel like I keep, Shuhan, you want to go up to the board? You want to start? They're like, oh yes, Olivia, you've been, you're always up there. And I'm like, well, I'll just take a break this week. You know what I'm thinking? Oh God, I have no idea how to do these problems. But at that point, you know, I think the group sort of saw me as like just a regular contributing member who has great ideas, who can do the work. Um, you know, d- did I have to do that in order to be accepted? You know, I'll never know because mm-hmm. I chose to do it that way because I didn't want people to have a false notion that somehow I didn't bring as much to the table or was intellectually weak or, you know, and so I, I want, I definitely felt like I needed to present an image that might be counter to the current narrative when you think of black women in math and stats. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also feel like it, it helped them to see me as a contributor, as a team player. Right. So when I did ask questions, it wasn't from a place of, Oh, Talithia doesn't know. It's like, Oh, Talithia, who has solved the first two homework sets on the board <laughs> mm-hmm. just needs clarity here, you know, just, <laughs> you know, needs to understand this issue. Um, because we all work together, I think we were a really close group. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, we, you know, if one person got it, we all got it. But if, if, if none of us understood, none of us understood, like, you know, it was sort of like all or nothing. And so I remember one Friday we're turning in homework and, and I was like, you know, I, I had a question, you know, there was this problem I just couldn't get. Can you, you know, asking the, the instructor, can you give a hint or, you know, what was this solution? Mm-hmm. I just couldn't. 
And I remember he sort of turned like, well, you should just ask your classmates. And I was like, and so I looked back at them and then they were like, actually, none of us got it. So if you could clarify, like we all appreciate it. And it was sort of like this moment of like, uh, oh, uh, oh, well, uh, well, uh, uh, none of you got it. Then let me just, you know, what you really, you know. Um, but it was just interesting how it changed, you know, and, and, you know, maybe his response would have been the same had anyone asked, but it, it, it was, it was a little snarky. It was like, <laughs> well, you should have asked your classmates because they've turned in their homework and they probably got it. I'm like, nope, we all do it together on Wednesday. And none of us got it. Um, so I remember like being so proud also that they spoke up instead of me having to say, no, 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 you don't understand. We work in a group. We all work together and nobody right. got it. Like they were quick to chime in like, no, you need to respond to her because nobody got it. And we would all appreciate, you know, you giving us a hint on how to solve this problem. So that that was a, a great moment of belonging. So this was really brilliant of you to walk in and recognize immediately that you needed to build a community. And you thought right away how you were going to do this. Yeah, I'm I'm just struck at how smart you were as a as a graduate student. Um, you know, Dana, I think the EDGE program helped with that. I can't take uh, credit because mm-hmm. I did the EDGE program the summer before and it was mm-hmm. all about building community, mm-hmm. even though we were all at different places, like leaning on each other for support. And so I think that sort of clued me into, you know, if I'm going to be successful in grad school, it's going to be success uh, as a group. You know, we're we're going to win wholesale, not retail. And so, like, you know, we're, we're going to all win together. Um, we're not going to win individually. And so I think Edge really helped me think about, like, how to, how to build that relationship. Um, there's a session we have each summer on difficult dialogues, like sort mm-hmm. of talk about belonging and community and how do you have difficult conversations when people are coming from all over. And, and I, I enjoyed that conversation. And, and so recognizing that even in, in this close-knit group of first-year students, we're all coming with our own prejudices and biases. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you really, you felt then that you belonged, given this community that you created in graduate school. Um, did, that, did that feeling persist through graduate school? For the most part, mm-hmm. it did. I think definitely... Um, Definitely in the statistics department, it, you know, my professors were supportive and encouraging. You know, I remember I took my qualifying exams and I failed one of them. Um, and so I had to retake it. And I just remember feeling so discouraged, just like, mm-hmm. oh, call the U-Haul. I'm not cut out for this, you know. <laughs> um, and one of my professors just saying like, oh, it's not a big deal. You'll take it again and pass. Oh, I failed them in college. You know, and mm-hmm. I failed them when I was a grad student. I'm like, oh! you failed your what in the world and you're still a bull professor you know I mean it was just and so you know those are things that just don't show up on anyone's cv nobody talks about them but um there are things that we all go through and I think they really made me feel like it was normal you know I wasn't the only person who failed uh when I had taken them that time but somehow I was like holding on to it as though it was really like reflective of who I was Mm -hmm. instead of my ability in the moment to answer these six questions correctly mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so yes yeah, so i do i definitely feel like the the department the community the students were amazingly supportive some of that support waned as i got out into the community so as i got in spaces where i was getting to know people for the first time or getting to know folks in the stats community for the first time those are spaces where i felt very other and very um are you sure you're not lost and Mm -hmm. oh let me see your badge I'm like well three people just walked in Mm -hmm. (laughs) and while you're looking at my badges five people walk behind you you know but somehow you got to make sure I'm where I'm supposed to be um or can you bring more coffee you know that Mm -hmm. always just like used to Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so this this idea of being in the right place would come up when I would go to conferences and not necessarily by the attendees often it's by the people who were like managing the space right the you know folks work in the exhibition hall people doing registration so people who are like the gatekeepers to the to the event right. not like the mathematicians or right. um but but it paints a picture of the community it was like well you know because I didn't know at the time that you know these weren't, weren't part of the community I you know right. I mean, mm-hmm. wasn't disassociating the person doing registration with just a, you know, an average mathematician. Exactly. Um, and I think sometimes when those things would happen, my colleagues in grad school would speak up 
like, oh, like, why would you do that? Why, you know, like, Talithia's one of us. Talithia has a great question. Whereas it felt like in these spaces, sometimes people would see that it was happening or see that I was being asked and wouldn't say anything. Mm-hmm. Like, nobody asked you if you were lost, but we're right next to each other. Mm-hmm. People ask if I'm in the right space, even mm-hmm. though you don't get that question as a white guy. And really? so, like, those are moments where I wish that we would encourage more mathematicians to speak up because then you know by not speaking up it's like well so do you agree with the question like do you also think I'm in the wrong place and you're like yeah that's a valid question you know you could very well be lost or you could very well you know be the person who gets coffee Um, so what would you say to someone in that situation if you are uh walking in and get questioned what would you like to say to the person next to you to oh gosh well now that i've had some time to stew on it um (laughs) so like the coffee question because you know at the time i was i was just sort of like huh like oh Mm -hmm. i'm not what you know and so it's sort of like the the audacity or the gall you know now i Mm -hmm. i i try to question back like oh tell me what makes you think that i am you know, the person who gets coffee as opposed right. to, say, the keynote speaker. Right. And so I always try to invite them to a conversation instead mm-hmm. of, I know you didn't, you know, just <laughs> I was the, you know, uh, because there's also nothing wrong with those roles, right? You know, I don't want to make it seem mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm too above, I don't get coffee, you know, like, right. I, yes. I'm happy to bring someone coffee. Like, you know, that's, that's not it. And so I don't want to, I don't want to try to demean the roles that people take, you know, mm-hmm. um, but I also want to try to draw attention to someone's bias. And so the first thing you thought when you saw me was she must be one of the workers and maybe it's because many of the workers are black and brown. Okay. You know, like you're, mm-hmm. you're using your senses in terms of what you see, especially given where, you know, if a conference is in Atlanta and all the servers are black and you see a black person walk in, you're not like, Oh, are they dressed in all black? And you know, You're just thinking, are you here to refill the coffee? But Mm -hmm. to kind of like bring someone's attention to it and to Mm -hmm. say like, oh, I want you to stop and look at me. I've got a badge on. Mm -hmm. I don't have on a uniform. You know, I'm carrying a tote bag that says Mm -hmm. joint math meetings. Mm -hmm. So so when you ask me to get coffee, Mm -hmm. what makes you ask me? Like, Mm -hmm. I could just as easily ask you to get coffee, right? Mm -hmm. And so so it it just makes people pause, I think, to recognize their bias. Right. Exactly. That reminds me of the chemist in the movie Picture a Scientist. Have you seen that Sloan Foundation film? No. So the chemist is um, an African-American woman in California. And she talks about when she went to work one morning and pulled in the faculty parking lot, the parking attendant tried to shoo her away and say, this is the faculty parking lot. You can't park in here. And she had the sticker on the back of her car And she said, though, I thought she made a really important point. It's a different one than you're making. Her point was, that's how I start my day. That, you know, three-minute exchange starts me in a diminished position. It definitely takes a lot of energy to Mm -hmm. engage in a positive way. Um, (laughs) My husband and I came on campus to get my laptop when stuff first shut down and the campus had closed down and so you couldn't be on unless you were, you know, faculty or staff and we're walking on and maybe we're coming from the gym. So, you know, I don't look like faculty and (laughs) um, he's this big guy and, you know, and so we walk on and there's a security officer and I'm thinking, oh, how's this going to (laughs) go? He's like, oh, the campus is closed, you know, just to faculty and staff, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry. And I was like, oh, yes, absolutely. I'm just here. I need to go up to my office and, you know, get my computer. Mm-hmm. My husband's going to help me. You know, we'll be done in a, in a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so just sort of like engaging, like, yep, you're absolutely right. And so that's why we're here. So we can just get it and take it home, you know. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't recognize you. I'm like, dude, you don't know me from me. But, you know, but I... <laughs> He definitely like switched his energy to be like, oh, all right, well, welcome, you know, let me know if I can help. Um, yeah, but, you know, part of it, you you have to kind of give out um, an energy that like tells people that like, no, I'm, I'm meant to be here and I'm excited to be here and like, this is my place. And also I try not to assume the worst. So I try not to assume, even though sometimes people, you know, I think if I were a white woman in you know, business casual, he probably wouldn't have said a word like, oh, you look like you work here and you're, you're coming to do something. So um, I probably look like a student anyway, but uh, no. <laughs> that's it. Olivia. I'm sure. 
I would take that's probably that. Probably what it was, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm going to take us in a slightly different direction and just sure. say um, uh, the the late Fred Rogers used to say that we should always look for the helpers in our neighborhood. And I was just thinking as you look back on um, all of your education, your childhood and education, you mentioned a few of the teachers who helped you along the way, but I wondered if you could point out someone else who has helped you or encouraged you on your path. Yeah, I mean, um, I hate to say my mom in a very cliche mm-hmm. way, but I think she has been a, a tremendous support. Um, you know, there's never been a moment where I thought I couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and all, all of that has to do with sort of the support that she has poured in throughout, you know, my childhood and, and into adulthood. Um, and also just being a source of, you know, like a source of stability and support and encouragement and, you know, motivation has been instrumental. Um, I had a really strong church community growing mm-hmm. up and, mm-hmm. you know, the elders, we call them at, in the church community, mm-hmm. um, had a way of just like making you feel like you were the most important child of God there ever was, you know? And so we would have like oratorical contests or, you know, Easter speeches, Christmas speeches. So all these opportunities to come up and share, you know, your voice with the community, um, all these people who had a hand in raising you and, and disciplining you even like, you know, I felt like people weren't afraid to discipline me if they saw me cutting up around town, like, oh, don't let me call your mama, get over here. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and so I, it just felt like I had all these eyes and, mm-hmm, uh, and mm-hmm. ears that were always looking out to make sure that I was, you know, kind of on the straight and narrow. Um, but that was a way of showing love and showing mm-hmm. value mm-hmm. and that this community supports you and loves you and wants the best for you. Um, And I I think that had so much to do with my self-confidence because I felt like I had this group of people who, who, who just loved me and, Mm -hmm. and wanted to see me succeed and believed that I could, that I would start to believe that too. And so, um, you know, Spellman definitely reinforced that, you know, and so then, you know, you come out of Spellman thinking, I'm going to be the president of the United States. Obviously. <laughs> um, and so, so, so then to go into an environment like, like Rice or, you know, the math community or, you know, a math conference and feel something different. It's like, oh, well, that was strange. Like, what is that feeling? I've never felt that before. And so that, I think that's part of what made me so sensitized Mm-hmm. to it because growing up I never felt that and you know mm-hmm. Spelman I didn't feel that off and on in high school you know but for the most part it wasn't until I graduated Spelman that I started to feel uncomfortable in spaces and I started mm-hmm. to notice that oh I am the difference like treat, people are treating me different because of who I am and I've, I'd never experienced that before but I was so far along that I could sort of recognize it for what it was and I think especially sometimes when we have students who are in primarily white spaces, they can internalize that and think, oh, it must be me. There must be something about me as to why I can't be successful in this class or why I'm right. struggling in this area. And so I never, I didn't get that feeling until later, feeling like, oh, this is that weird feeling of feeling like maybe it's something innate in me as to why I can't instead mm-hmm. of the environment that's creating a situation that's impeding my success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think a really interesting project, I've said this out loud, I hope it's made its way back to you, Talithia. I think a really interesting project is the influence of the church community on members of the math community. And where I started thinking about this was in two, I think, consecutive issues of the notices are closed together. There was an article on Katherine Johnson, and one of the photos was of her tutoring in the church basement. Just what you were saying, though, those kids didn't know who was tutoring them. And then there was an article about a mathematician who's in his 60s or 70s now. I think he's chair of a department. I can't think of his name now. And he talked about when he was in second grade, he was really sick. And his teacher dropped his homework off every single day, went by his house, dropped it off. And I remember thinking, this, we need to study this. Like, we don't talk about, well, we're just starting to talk about uh, Catherine Johnson's role in her church. We've, we're now talking about her at NASA, but there's a whole nother arm of her and she's not the only one. Anyway, I don't want to sidetrack this, but the point you're making there is, I think it's one 
that deserves further broader attention, I guess, is what I would say. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I agree. And I um, that's one reason that I always try to bring up being a person of faith, because often the two people see the two as being mutually exclusive, like either you're a scientist mm-hmm. or you believe in God, you know, um, but somehow being a mathematician who believes or a statistician who has faith people sort of think that, you know, that's an oxymoron. And so, um, and, and I think, I remember the moments when I struggled the most, the moments when I was ready to give up math and let go of statistics. And, you know, I had the U-Haul on speed dial. I'm like, mm-hmm. yep, I'm calling back. I think I'm really serious this time. Here's my address. <laughs> Come and pack me up, you know. Um, those moments, I think I've always gone back to my faith to, uh-huh. to like help me get through. Um, and so I, I owe a lot to, to that belief and that grounding and that practice. And so I think there's so many times like that where I've just reached out like, God, I have no idea what to do here. I really need your help in understanding this problem, understanding this model. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And God's never been too small to answer it. Like, you know, to live here, I don't know math. Like, <laughs> of course you do. Like, you, you know, and so, you know, why not, you know, uh, for me kind of lean on that relationship. So, mm-hmm. So there's only so much time in the day, Talithia. And I know that you have some special way of making extra time for yourself because I've seen the kinds of things that you can accomplish. But how do you choose what you prioritize in your life? Yeah, you know, part of it, I think, is um, uh, merging things. I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. that picture of of my son under the table, you know, mm-hmm. I think you took that picture, Deanna, mm-hmm. you know, the mathematics and motherhood panel. And he's just under there like, yep, I'm here with my mom and, you know, listening <laughs> to the panel. Um, and so I think that picture is so representative of what life is really like, you know, mm-hmm. um, the more I travel to speak different places, I really try to bring them along mm-hmm. and um, make them a part of those experiences um, and, and invite them into those spaces. You know, it's one thing to sort of like come with me to a conference. It's another thing to come to events with me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in as much as they're excited to, I'm excited to have them because I, I feel like these are conversations that my boys need to hear. Mm-hmm. Too, and I want them to see their mom in these spaces and get excited, but it also helps me balance and feel like, you know, I get to share this experience with my family. You know, it's, it's, really sort of a merger of work and life and not allowing the two to fight against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, so, so I try to prioritize like, you know, family, faith, uh, fun and finances. <laughs> <laughs> family, faith, fun and finances. So like anything that I do needs to check some of those boxes, right? It can't just be fun and I can't bring my family and it's not improving my faith and, you know, there, there's no financial gain. And so, and so, you know, I think I have sort of the, the four F's that I need to kind of check off. And if, if I can check off all of them, then it's like, great, this is an event that we can do as a family. We're going to have a great time. Mm-hmm. So for example, Sockness a couple of years ago was in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. On Take the whole family, you know, my trip's paid for. So I just got to get you plane tickets, you know, and, you know, we're going to have a great time. And so, you know, those are the things that I try to make sure to do those things that, that check off a lot of the F's um, and, and cut out the things that don't, and also not be apologetic about that. I've, I've had to learn that you, you know, you can't, I can't spread myself too thin and it's, mm-hmm. um, and to sort of apologize that, you know, I'd love to, I'm inundated here are three great people who would be amazing, you know, to do this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but just sort of recognizing my limits in a way that I think I didn't before. I would just agree because it was a great opportunity and I wanted to help. And um, and I just had to realize that there's only so much of me to go around. And when I'm spread, then, you know, stuff at home doesn't work well. You know, the, the boys get upset when mommy's always gone or mommy's always tired. And, you know, I don't want to go play basketball in the backyard with you. I just want to lay here and watch Netflix and, you know, <laughs> and, um, and so I realized that I'm, if I'm going to have me to pour out to them, then like, you know, me has to be whole, me has to have time to go get a massage or a pedicure or, you know, these things that I really enjoy and value, um, so that I can kind of pour into them, you know, and, and give them the best parts of me. Also, my time with them is limited. I also, mm-hmm. you know, I realized that the years that they have with me are going to be short. You know, my boys are nine, 11 and 13. And so, 
you're going to be in college tomorrow, basically. Uh, and so, you know, I also want to enjoy these years because once they're gone, then yeah, take over the world, run here, do this. Um, but in the time that I have with them, I'm, you know, and maybe COVID has helped, I think, us to see that more clearly. It's like, oh, this time is short, it's special, enjoy it because right. it'll soon be gone, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I don't go home and, yeah, I try to see my mom twice a year, but I'm like, oh. <gasps> Are my boys just going to see me twice a year? You know, I mean, just right. the thought that they would only like, what do you mean you're not going to live down the street from your mother? What is this? You know, and I think about like, oh, yeah, I don't see my mom all the time. Like I have a whole life that's separate from her. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really got to enjoy these kids while their life is so intertwined with mine. Because soon they'll have a life that's completely independent of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know um, from knowing you, I know that you're particularly close to your boys and a great mother. And I'm just wondering, how do you take the time to think about the big picture of your life? Mm. What you want to accomplish in your life and how do you make progress toward that? And maybe what you want to accomplish on your life is raising three amazing boys and and that's your focus. But um, how do you make time for uh, thinking about the big picture of what you want to accomplish for yourself? Yeah. You know, that's, that's um, a tough question because I think often I don't know what that is. Like I, you know, if you had have asked me that six years ago, you know, my answer would be very different, I think, from where I am today. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's always been about being open to opportunities and, um, you know, kind of willing to step into those spaces that make me uncomfortable uh, because that tends to be where the reward is. So the, the the TEDx talk was, one of my students was on the local Claremont College's TEDx committee and um, asked me if I could do a TEDx talk. And I'm like, I don't really have time for that. You know, I got, I had young kids at the time, right? Mm-hmm. This is 2014. Mm-hmm. I was like, I get these three young boys. I barely have time to prepare your lecture, let alone like a separate talk, you know? Um, and she's like, well, Prof Williams, I think you'd be great. And like, we didn't get a whole lot of Harvey Mudd students last year. So maybe if we have a Mudd professor, students will come. Literally, like, it was just kind of like, come on, you can help us get more people. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, I guess it'll be good practice to try to give a public talk, you know, and, fine. What's the topic? She says, it's storytelling. I'm like, you know what? Work with me. I'm I don't need a story. I don't tell stories. I'm a mathematician. Like I, storytelling. What? Um, so Art Benjamin and I worked on, you know, telling stories with data. You know, I'm like, Art, you've mm-hmm. done Ted, real Ted talks. Can you help me think about something to say? And, you know, and so, you know, art's amazing and funny and punny and and so like we're working through this talk and I'm like okay well this is good like this will be great and it'll be something that I could give you know in the future if I have to give like a public whatever general lecture and so you know when that got when that got upgraded to a TED talk Mm -hmm. it opened all these possibilities and I remember thinking Slithy you didn't even want to do that like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You, you know, the whole time you were kind of like going, kicking and screaming, like, I'll do this for you, you know, <laughs> but it wasn't like, oh, I can't wait to give this. And then it's going to grow into this. And, the, you know, like there was no part of me that imagined what could have come from this talk where I'm putting up pictures of my husband in the bathroom half naked, you know, like I wouldn't have put, you know, if you'd have asked me like, oh, two million people might see this. Oh, okay. Well, I won't do that picture, you know? And so, um, so like that was an opportunity that then opened the door for Nova and PBS and these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, next week, I'm I'm like doing some voiceover for BBC for their universe series. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. I don't even have an accent. Like, do I need to start talking like this so that I can <laughs> talk about who we are? You know, like it doesn't, it sounds crazy. And so part of me is just like, this is, this is crazy. And it's so different from, I think, where I thought I would be. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's equally hard for me to think about it, like impact in the future or what I want to do in the future because I I feel like it's constantly changing and I'm constantly adjusting to being in the moment mm-hmm. um, and it makes it a little harder to sort of like plan like okay I think in five years I want to be able to like you know what today I'm just going to be open to whatever email comes my way <laughs> you know <laughs> and. Um, and be open to that that possibility mm-hmm. um, and stepping outside of my comfort zone. I mean, there's so many 
uh, chances where I really kind of wanted to say, I don't think I'm cut out for this. I don't think I have training, you know, hosting a show. Like, what do I, I've never hosted a show and, mm-hmm. you know, lectures, you know, I remember at one point we were going through and I was reading the script and they were like, well, Talithia, this isn't like one of your lectures. People can turn the station. <laughs> they can change the channel. <laughs> you don't have their undivided attention for 50 minutes. So like, you got to make it exciting. I'm like, oh, okay. Because I'm like, you know, uh, black holes are formed in the center of the, you know, I mean, just, just matter of fact, you know, they're like, no, nope. you know, so they do like this. I'm turning the station on you. I'm like, oh, okay. <gasps> black holes are formed in the center, you know. <laughs> Yeah, like it was like stepping outside. And I think I think it's made me a better professor because I realized like, oh, I need to engage students as well. I can't just present information matter-of-factly or in a boring way. And so I think it's helped me to be a better teacher because mm-hmm. I've sort of had this experience of trying to engage people for whom they're choosing to watch you. They're choosing to learn about science. They're choosing, you know, to stay glued in for an hour. And how are you going to, you know, keep them excited and give them a reason to stay tuned in? Mm-hmm. In what aspect of your life do you still feel like you're a student? Oh, gosh. So many. Our church has an orchestra, and I play mm-hmm. the clarinet and bass clarinet, like in mm. high school and marching band. And so I got a little clarinet, and I play in the orchestra, and I am not good. <laughs> and it's so fun <laughs> not be good. Like, I squeak sometimes, and they're like, what was that? And then I look back, too, like, oh, I don't know. Let me look <laughs> Um, but I love being in spaces where I don't have to be the expert. I don't have uh-huh. to be good where mm-hmm. I can contribute to the group and, and, and that be okay and have a good time and not feel pressured. You know, I'm not trying to be the first chair clarinetist. Like we're playing a hymn. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to make a joyful noise, a joyful noise. It won't be a perfected praise. It'll just be joyful and noisy. <laughs> and so, and just being okay with that and enjoying, you know, being average and not to say that I excel at everything I do, but like, it's okay to just be basic, (laughs) basic clarinet player who used to play okay. And now just sort of like carries the baseline. (laughs) Yeah. I want to go rogue with my question here because you really already answered the next one I was going to ask, but there are two things I want to know about. I'll start with Freeman who I have a professional crush on and I hope podcast Sam, our producer doesn't cut that out because I am professionally, I really like Freeman Habowski. And I heard you talk about a year you spent with him. So I want you to just say a little bit about that because first of all, listeners might be interested in pursuing the same program you did and what you learned about it. And then I remember you saying, you went home and told your super cute great husband, look, I want to go across the country and spend a year of my life with another guy. And you got your husband on board with that. So I just kind of want to hear you talk about that for a few minutes. I mean, you know, so Freeman's a gem, you know, he's a, he's a amazing as a leader, as a person and his contribution to higher ed in general and at, at UMBC specifically. Um, and so, and so the opportunity came up for me to do an ACE fellowship, ACE fellowship with him. And he, he agreed for some strange reason. I don't know. I think it's because I was Southern and I was a math major and I played all that up. I was like, you know, I'm from Georgia and you're from Alabama and you know, I majored in math and you majored in math. And I too went to an HBCU. And so, yeah, I'm like getting all, I hear all the reasons why you should uh, accept me for this program. Um, I, it's it's one thing to like what hear him speak right like he he he's amazing to sort of hear speak he's motivational he's inspiring i think for me spending that year just sort of shadowing him um it allowed me to see the toll that that takes sometimes we don't appreciate what people go through when they give themselves to us, you know what I mean? And so he has given himself to higher ed period, right? Just so available and mentors so many people, you know, and so invested. And so just to see all of that, to see it up close, to see how he does it so well, to see how he remembers people's names and how he knows folks and how he affirms people on a very regular basis. But then to also see when it's like, he hadn't eaten all day, you know, or <laughs> just can somebody 
drop him off at home because he can't even drive because he, you know, and just, just sort of this, you know, seeing, seeing the parts of a person that allow them to sort of get to this stage and be very high functioning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, but yeah, but also the, the parts where it's like, you see where they're very human, just like us, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, he's very otherworldly. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was so great to, uh, to, 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 to feel almost like his, his wingman in a sense, like, oh, mm-hmm. like I get to, to be a part of that, be a part of that energy um, and a part of kind of what, what makes him him, a part of his legacy. Um, I think for me, you know, I really wanted to learn what it was like as an African-American to lead a predominantly white institution. Mm-hmm. And so in thinking about higher ed and, and thinking about, you know, what are spaces where you have black leaders at primarily white institutions and how, how has he been able to be so successful in this environment where, whereas you see other situations where people are not as successful. And so for me, that was something really uh, interesting. I, I knew that he was a person of faith because I could sort of tell, you know, he'd be like, well, you know, in the back of a Birmingham church. And I'm like, hmm, you know, so kind of like to your point earlier, you know, about math and the church, you know, I'm like, he, he talked about growing up and hearing Dr. King, where else would you hear Dr. King other than, you know, a church in, in Alabama? Um, and so to see how his faith played into his leadership, into his decision-making was something that I really wanted to learn and got, and got a chance to understand uh, for, from him as well. And, and then just, um, you know, having him mentor me and give me advice and, um, you know, there's so much that he has seen and been through that I'm currently seeing and currently going through. And so having that perspective, much like, you know, the elders of my church, you know, like we've been through it, you're going to go through it and we're going to help you get through it. I definitely felt like academically, and, you know, um, professionally, he has been that, right? Okay, mm-hmm. here's what I've been through. You know, Talithia, I'm sunsetting. Like, I'm, I'm riding out. And, <laughs> you know, we need to build up the next generation. I think one of the reasons that he has taken ACE Fellows is that exact reason. Like, folks want to work with him. But he also knows that, like, you know, there's going to come a time where he's ready to step out of this role and step into whatever is next for him. And he wants to make sure that there are folks coming up behind him, uh, who's, who he's had a chance to touch and inspire. And so it was, a, it was amazing. It was amazing. And it's so great, too, to have that relationship to lean on as things continue to come up. Because I'm, you know, texting him, like, well, what do you think about that? Well, such and such came out. And what would you do if you were president? You know, like, <laughs> it's been really great um, for, you know, to have him uh, continue to kind of pour into me, even, even what, five, six years after, after my fellowship. Yeah. <laughs> well, you talk about the toll that it takes when he gives so much of himself, but that's what I see with you too, Talithia. You give a lot of yourself in the things that you do and in in your being a professor and being an advocate for young women and young women of color and um, being a parent. I wonder, how do you take care of yourself what do you do to take that step back and make sure that you stay healthy? Um, how do you take care of yourself? Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting that you um, <clears throat> mentioned that because it reminds me recently of Nicole Hannah-Jones and, and her decision not to go to UNC mm-hmm. and how, you know, I kind of, I was really resonating with that, you know, as, mm-hmm. as uh, you know, one of few Black professors at Harvey Mudd and feeling like the toll that it takes to try to shift an institution in another direction when so many students lean on you for support in ways outside of your class, you know, and outside of your homework and outside of that. Um, And so, and so, yeah, in addition to just sort of the regular day to day, there's this, there's this added burden of being one of a few because people want time with you um, they need you to pour into them. I often get students from the other Claremont colleges because they're like, we don't have any black faculty. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, you are, and the I think Harvey Mudd is, for all those people. That's right. El- yeah, exactly. Yeah. Elders for the Claremont colleges. Um, and Harvey Mudd has been so supportive in too, in recognizing that there is, that that takes time and that mm-hmm. takes energy, you know, and, and trying to somehow honor the energy that it takes to be available to an entire community of people. But when I leave campus, 
I try to leave campus. And so mm-hmm. I will try not to be on email. I really try to, to come home and be home and be present and not just be home, but still working. Um, mm-hmm. I, and, and so that, that often means that if I get an email Friday afternoon and it doesn't get looked at until Monday morning, you know, mm-hmm. but I also try to make that clear to my students like, oh, I'm not one of those professors that you're gonna, that's gonna respond to you at 2 a.m. You know, and even if I'm up, I'm not going to respond because I don't want you thinking that you can reach me at 2 a.m. So just setting those boundaries in terms of, you know, when I'm in this space, I'm going to pour myself out to you. But then when I'm away from this space, that means I need to pour myself out to family. When I'm all poured out, that means mommy needs a massage. Right. So I, you know, Mm -hmm. once a month, I try to go like get a massage. I try to have this quality time, you know, that I can just get rejuvenated and refreshed. Um, Since I have three boys, it's easy for them to all play together. So often I'll take time when they're just outside playing or they're on Roblox or Fortnite, you know, I'll take Mm -hmm. time to just sit down and kind of read or meditate. Um, And so I try to find pockets of time for myself. Believe it or not, the pandemic has made that easier because Mm -hmm. often, you know, talks are virtual or were virtual, you know, classes were virtual. So besides kicking my son out of his room so mommy could, you know, teach from his bedroom, um, it, you know, they've really had a lot of time with me and I've had a lot of time with them. And so I think mm-hmm. they've grown to appreciate and enjoy that. Mm-hmm. But that also means I've had a lot of space to myself as well, which is, has been really welcome. Mm-hmm. At this stage in my life, I think we're working on this seeing people and spending time with people and, um, So whether that's family or friends, just like how to be a better friend by being intentional in in spending time with folks and um, and not stressing about what it costs. I think previously I would like not do something like, oh, that ticket's going to be five hundred dollars. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and then I was like, what are we you know, why are we trying to die wealthy? Mm -hmm. Like, what's the point in dying with a lot of money? You know, not that we need to die broke, but. You know, why Why do we forego relationships over these tangibles, you know? Right. Um, and so let's not go out to eat for three months and then let's plan a trip. You know, and so like there are things that I think we can cut so that we can create more quality time with mm-hmm. people that we love and, mm-hmm. and just be more intentional. Um, because, you know, I think what COVID has showed me is that, to, you know, tomorrow has never been promised, but just to see so many people who have either passed away or gotten really sick or, you know, and, and you just, you don't think that you're going to lose people until you lose them. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you don't, um, you don't realize that that time is passing And I think sometimes it's easy to take that for granted. Um, Dean, I think we should do our quick fire questions. Are you ready, Olivia? I'm ready. What's the last book you read that you could not put down? The Color of Compromise. Oh, okay. By Jamar Tisby. It was probably the last book that I was reading. Um, It taught, yeah, so now I feel like I got to explain. This book talks about sort of, the history of racism and the church. Mm. And so um, it's interesting to think about how the church has in some ways been complicit in racism Mm -hmm. and what are some ways that, that the church can do to try to make changes for the better because having grown up in the church, but a, but a segregated church, that wasn't my view. I was like, Oh, the church and racism. What? You know? And so just to sort of see how, how in history the church has been complicit in perpetuating mm-hmm. racism and how um, and what we can do to change that was eye-opening. So mm-hmm. and tell us tell us about a place you really enjoy. A place I really enjoy. My car, believe it or not, I spend a lot of time there, especially when I'm by myself and I can like play Spotify and like any music, you know, cause when you have kids, you can't play certain music. If it's got certain words in it, you know. Um, but when I'm in my car by myself, I can blast it. It can be loud. It can have a word or two that my kids aren't supposed to say in it. And that's okay. Um, so I love being in my car. I also enjoy being um, at the beach. I find a lot of, a lot of solace around water and, and being on the beach. So that's a fun spot too. I don't get there as much as I'd like to though. 
What's on your desk that would surprise us? She's looking at me. <laughs> there is a Pac-Man game, a miniature Pac-Man arcade game, like old school arcade. And I might have been a Mrs. Pac-Man champion back in my day. And so, uh, yeah, this is something I sort of use to de-stress. <laughs> Does it work? Does it work? Sorry, you at home, you can't see, but yes, it does work. I just turned it on and then it's got the little controller so you can like start it. For a yellow arcade game with a little red controller. Yes, yes, loved it. Yeah. That has turned out to be the best question, I'm telling you. (laughs) Well, thank you for your time, Dilithia. We are certainly grateful for our time with you. It was great. This is so fun. Well, that was really fun. She has so much energy. I just love talking to Talithia. What did you get out of our conversation, Della? Well, one of the first things I took away is just the spirit of gratitude. Mm -hmm. She is so grateful. Mm -hmm. In this relatively short conversation, she expressed gratitude to her husband, her children, her colleagues, naming some of them like Art Benjamin her mm-hmm. ISO stack group, Freeman Hubrowski. I'm also really impressed with what I'm going to refer to as her incredible understanding of spaces. Mm, yeah. Here I'm talking about physical spaces, but even more, I'm talking about spaces for her mind and soul. For example, when she talked about being in the car, it's a concentrated space where she can just be free. She can be herself. She doesn't have to be accountable. Um, she also intentionally created space at Rice with her colleagues for studying. And she also talked about the importance of spaces where you don't have to be the expert. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this segues really nicely into a discussion of community, partly because the space she created at Rice was also one for community. But when she was in school, her teacher, Mr. Dorman, He intentionally created the space, which I would also call he intentionally created a community where students could belong just for trying problems. You didn't have to be right. Mm -hmm, So this mm -hmm. was shifting their perspective of what it means to be a part of the group. Just try the problem is what he was saying. And Mm -hmm. then, of course, when she went to Spelman, this whole perspective was also underscored there. Mm -hmm. And finally, I was reminded of the importance of mentors Claudia Alexander, Sylvia Bozeman, Catherine Enzer, Etta Faulkner, Mr. Dorman, Freeman Hrabowski, these have all been people who played important roles in her life. It just reminds me to think about the people who've played those roles for myself and to be on the lookout to do that for others. Mm -hmm. Wow, you are so right. Those are great observations. I love your uh, pointing out this creating spaces. She is really good at spaces, the space to keep herself healthy and the, and a space for her students and a space, um, you know, where she can be quiet on her own. Uh, I, I love your observations. That was great. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us. This is Della Indiana. We're counting you in until next time. See ya. Count Me In with Della Indiana is produced by the talented Sam Dunnewald. Music is by Casey Fenster and the podcast image is by Victoria Robinson.